0: Good morning again. Happy spring break to all of your students and parents and especially teachers. I know the teachers need this week and uh, we in the Cheney household feel the same way. I have a simple two-question quiz to start out the sermon today, so grab yourself a pen. You've got to write down your answer to this question, your test, your spring break test. What is the name of the fight song? or the, uh, also known as the service anthem, of the United States Navy. What is the Navy's fight song? If you don't know the answer to this first question, then you can't answer the second question. You get an F on the test. Uh, but who knows it? What's the fight song? Anchors away. Bum, 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 right? Anchors away. If you answer that question correctly, then you get to answer the second question. Here it is. How do you spell the second word in that title? How do you spell that? A W A Y, right? Anchors away, you just drop it into the ocean and, th- and there they plunge into the heart of the sea. No, I no, I I thought so. I mean, for those of us landlubbers who were never close to the coast and whose you know family never had any connection to the Navy, I just assumed it's AWAY, but no, it's actually. A W E I G H to weigh an anchor is to bring it aboard a vessel in preparation for departure. I didn't know that. The phrase anchors away is a report that the anchors are clear of the bottom of the sea and therefore the ship is the ship is officially sailing. Let me suggest to you that everyone has an anchor away. Everyone has an anchor away and both senses of the term we we all root ourselves to something to steady our lives P- particularly we sing about the storm and the tempest and particularly in the storm we we plunge the anchor down in this, and we also carry the anchor up the something that helps us you know move forward um, we all have an anchor away and those anchors are well documented you've heard it I've talked about it many times in sermons, you've heard it. I mean, it can be a romantic relationship. That's what we plunge ourselves down into or success, achievement, scholastic success, career advancement. A number of us, we anchor ourselves to our children's success. Some people mistakenly believe that in order for me in order for me to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I have to be 100% certain, absolutely certain. And we, we call the anchor certitude, certainty. You know, I've got to have explored every other possible option and religi- religious certainty is their anchor. On the other side, some people exercise what we would call blind or unexamined faith. Religious faith, kind of the syrupy, sentimental uh, expression synonymous with optimism. Religious faith is my anchor. Look with me today in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, and how it describes the anchor anchor of our souls. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying in uh, Genesis chapter 22, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and I will give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by some someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said, and you know the oath puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make what is said, I'm sorry, because God wanted to make unchanging wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised God confirmed it with an oath God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled to take hold of the hope that is set before us may be greatly encouraged we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become and Brian's going to preach about this next week. He has become a high priest, a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 50% of the world's population it ties itself back to Abraham quite remarkable one out of every two people living on the face of this earth are are underneath the umbrella we call the umbrella of the abrahamic faiths christianity judaism islam one out of every two people on this planet trace their spiritual roots back to this guy who lived 4000 years ago originally if you recall his name was abram Abram means exalted father. This was a source of embarrassment for Abraham because it was such a misnomer. You know, exalted father, what was the problem with that title for him? Exalted father didn't have any kids. You know, by the age of seventy-five, he's, he still didn't have a, a single son that he could count as his, his truly as his own seed. But at the age of 75, God comes to Abram and says, not only will you have a son, but your descendants will be more numerous than the sand, the grains of sand on the seashore. I will give you a land. I will make your name great. I will make you so, so incredibly prosperous. And at this point in the story, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to father of a multitude. He's seventy-five years old. Can you imagine going to your friends and saying, <clears throat> Guys, I've changed my name. <laughs> no longer are you to call me exalted father. You're going to call me father of a multitude. And, and yet, I mean he, he has nothing to show for it. Curiously, that is kind of how faith works in this life often. I mean you, you go for a long period of time and you may not have hardly anything to show for it. Sure enough, he goes 25 years in his life and he still hasn't had a son. His wife is about as old as he is and her womb is barren. How can I know that God's promises are true? How can I be certain that God's promises... No, Abraham most likely didn't ask that question. He didn't... To the best of my knowledge, he did not ask the question, how can I be certain? Since this, this... whole project of certainty is really a, a modern, a modern philosophical project. Go back to philosophy 101 if you ever took it. Uh, 17th century philosopher René Descartes, his quest was, I want to find something that is indubitably certain. And so uh, the, the Cartesian project was that he, he had to go back and find some foundational principle on which he could build uh, all the rest of his series of, of beliefs. How was it that Descartes tried to do that? Well, D- Descartes locked himself in a large Dutch oven. Uh, he, he put himself in in kind of the tank, so to speak, where he was removed from all sensory processing. It's just dark and cold. He's in there, and he's just going to think. He, think, 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 think. And the way he goes about finding this... Indubitably, indubitably, certain proposition is. He says, "I'm going to doubt everything. I'm just doubt absolutely everything. I'm going to doubt my own. I'm going to doubt that there's an external world. I'm going to doubt that there are there are any moral absolute truths. I'm going to even doubt my own existence. I mean, maybe who knows? Maybe a demon has has convinced me that there is something rather than nothing. And we've said before, you know, maybe there, we're maybe we're in the matrix. Maybe there's there's we're just all being duped. And that, was, that goes back to Descartes in the 17th century. Just, he thinks and thinks and he thinks. And then he has this voila moment. He says, hmm, there's only one thing I can be absolutely certain about. Do you know what it was? I cannot doubt that I am doubting. Because if I am doubting, then I must be thinking. If I am thinking, then I must have a mind, and and even better, I must be alive. And so you get uh, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Yes, I'm alive. (laughs) And he's a very smart man. So he's able to take this this little foundation of I exist, and he's able to then build all these uh, uh, indubitable certainties on top of them that if I exist, then the world must exist and if the world exists and you know so on and so, so forth for 300 years people's shape thinking was shaped by this need for certainty if you follow though uh, a college i mean today we don't talk about modernism do we we talk about postmodernism and postmodernism is largely characterized by the belief that you can't be certain about Anything You certainly can't be certain about any kind of philosophical concepts. I mean, all philosophy is, all morals are, they're just these culturally constructed terms of living that you really can't challenge other people's moral absolutes. It's, it's yours. It, it, they're subjectively determined. But even though we wade through the waters of postmodernism, Nevertheless, there is one form of certain knowledge that we have. There is a a universally accepted form of knowledge today that we can be absolutely certain about. And what is that knowledge? It's science. That's the one thing. I'm not saying it necessarily should be, but that is the one kind of form of of certainty currency that is shared among people today. Coming back to Hebrews chapter 6, though, and Abraham Let me suggest, I don't think Abraham ever received certainty. Certainty was never the Abrahamic project. What Abraham received from God is, is instead, one of the best definitions I can give you of faith, faith is reasonable trust. A good definition of faith. Reasonable trust in God's promises. Reasonable trust in the assurances that God makes to a person. Now, these assurances, when you read the Abraham story, comes in in a very bizarre form. I'm going to read it to you from Genesis chapter 15, a very bizarre story that this is how in Genesis chapter 15, God swears that he is going to be true to his promises. We read verse 9, the Lord God told Abram, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham presented all these to God, and he sacrificed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle, and he laid the halves of the two animals side by side. He, he dismembers the animals and he creates what effectively was an aisle to walk down. And we get this weird reference how some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abraham chased them away. We wonder what, what that exactly means. Then he gets this vision. Verse 17. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abraham saw a, he saw a vision of a, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passes between the halves of the carcasses. So what do we see? We see fire, and we see smoke. Now, what does that sound like that we find later in Israel's story? It's the exodus. This is the pillar of fire and and the, the pillar of the cloud of smoke. It's, it's a we're getting it into its basic form here in Genesis 15. The, the, the pillar and fire walks down the aisle between the carcasses. And so, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. But it, but it literally says, the Hebrew idiom there is God cut a covenant. Every time in the Bible you, you hear the words made a covenant, the actual literal Hebrew is God cut a covenant. You know what's going on here? What a bizarre story! What what is God trying to say? Well, in our world, when we sign our signature on the dotted line at the bottom of a piece of paper, our signature is is there saying that I promise to do this, and I am legally liable if I you know break the terms of this this covenant, this agreement that, um, or or we we will swear we will you know. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so so help me God. But that's the way that we... Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have paper laying around. You would, you'd have papyrus, but papyrus was very expensive. You wouldn't go around signing contracts. Instead, this is what we read that they did. A, a king would take a lesser king, who, who was called a vassal, a vassal king, and he would make the lesser king... Walk down the aisle between dismembered pieces of animals, and that was the way that the king would, the lesser vassal king, would swear that they would fulfill their terms of the covenant. Um, they're basically saying, I take an oath, may my body be ripped limb by limb, just like these pieces of animals, if, if I go back on my word. This is what we call a self-maledictory oath. This is when you were, maybe you learned this as a kid, uh, your own form of self-maledictory oath, the, the cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. to Anybody else? I th- some of you know you did not learn that. Good, I'm glad you didn't learn that. <laughs> self-maledictory oaths of the six-year-old. That's what, but that's what they were saying, is, is if, if I don't fulfill what I just promised, that what I swore to do, you know, let this be what happens to me. It would have been perfectly appropriate for God to make Abram walk the aisle, wouldn't it? I mean, that's how the, that's how the cultural symbol, uh, symbol w- worked. The, the greater king asked the lesser king. But our God turns the symbol on its head. It's not, you obey me, you swear to obey me, and you will get all the promises. Abraham could hardly believe it. And here's where I think, the matter of certitude come, comes back. I mean, Abraham. It says that he fell into a deep sleep. I suspect that this whole thing that he was seeing was kind of like a a trance vision dream. He had to wake up from this. Saying was that surely that wasn't real, was it? You know, God walked the aisle. I. That's so unbelievable. Was that was. Was this real or was this indigestion? You know, was this the matzo balls I had for dinner last night? I mean, yeah, he—he, he, in my opinion, he did not wake up feeling indubitably certain. All he had to go on was, I think God promised me this. I think God swore to do whatever is necessary in order to make good on His promises. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what he does in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is, He's saying, I swear to you that I am real and that I will do everything that is absolutely necessary in order to secure your salvation. Hebrews 6 picks up on this theme. He says that when God looked upon Abram because he couldn't swear by anything else, he can't swear on his mother's grave. You know, he can't swear because he can 't swear by anything more than him more than than the highest thing in the universe, he swears by himself. He says, "I will do this. You know how I love to plug books from the pulpit well here i I've plugged this book before it is ellis potter 's book Three Theories of everything in this he uh, he 's a philosopher. But he's a very, a very accessible philosopher, and he breaks down. If you like philosophy, um, I think you'll enjoy this book. I have free copies. Come and get it from me after the service. It's really good. I think for two kinds of people: one, the type of person who is not a Christian but is interested in, in exploring more and ex- exploring philosophical considerations that relate to faith. It's also really useful for Christians. Who want to find an extremely winsome way of articulating themselves to the rest of the the world. So he breaks down all of the worldviews down to three categories, monism, dualism, and Trinitarianism. And you say, wow, that's that's a lot of isms. That's pretty confusing. But no, he makes it extremely accessible. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about Potter is Potter was raised in a Christian home. He was a church kid. And then after he grew up, he ended up leaving the faith and becoming a Buddhist monk. (laughs) Somebody interviewed him, I think it was in Christianity Day a a few years back, and that's where I got this from. He said, well, why why did you go go become a Buddhist monk? And he said, well, when I was a young Christian, I had all kinds of uncertainties, questions, doubts, and I could never get answers from other Christians about them. You know, the other Christians would say, Ellis, don't ask questions. Just believe. Just believe. Become like a little child. Like Jesus says in the Sermon Out, become like a little child. He said that, I realized later on in life that that was a very bad use of that metaphor because to become like a little child means to ask a lot of questions and explore a lot of things. The problem is that nobody else wanted to be childlike with me. So he said, well, I began dabbling in Eastern religions. First, I, I... followed the Baha'i, then the Self-Realization Fellowship of Parmanahansa Yogananda, which is, I'm sure, mispronounced by me, and he said, finally, I became a Zen Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist monk. I loved Zen Buddhism because what they were doing, Zen Buddhism is not very religious, but it is concerned about absolute and ultimate questions. He said, I've been asking kind of ultimate questions all of my life, and and uh, that's, what I, that's what is appealing to me about Zen Buddhism. So then, Ellis, why did you come back to the Christian faith? And his answer to that question was profound. Here's what he said. He said, I realized that it, ta- it takes less faith to believe in Christianity than to believe in anything else. It takes less faith to be- believe in Christianity than anything else. He says, it it actually takes a tremendous amount of faith to believe in materialism, that the only thing that exists is matter, and that the only reason that matter is combined as we see it here in this room today is because by just pure chance and accident, all matter decided to come up with this combination. That takes a lot of faith to believe in pure materialism, doesn't it? he says it also it takes a lot of faith to believe in humanism which we kind of see in every disney movie this idea that human beings fundamentally are good and he says that takes a lot of faith coming out of the 20th 21st century or 20th century and seeing how many humans we actually killed you realize whoo you're really he said something that was also uh, very profound he said um he says I don't want to have a faith like that. Too much faith, too much faith is actually destructive. Too much faith is destructive. I don't want to have this big faith in a really in a really flimsy kind of idea. If anything, I want to have a teeny tiny faith in a massive truth. I don't want a big faith in a wrong idea. Um, I know that we humans, we can believe anything. We can believe that the world is flat, and we can believe it strongly enough that we are willing to die or kill for it. But the faith that the world is flat doesn't make the world flat in that same way. I can believe that Jesus Christ is God and Lord. That doesn't make him God and and Lord, but if he is God and Lord, then that's a really big truth. And even if I have a, a really tiny faith in that one independently large anchor. He says, that's what I want. And that's what God is calling us to. A reasonable trust in the historical reliability of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and a reasonable trust that God swears it's true. I swear to you, it's true. Okay, briefly, let's return to the metaphor we started out this sermon with, this metaphor of the anchor. There are two things necessary, two things necessary that an anchor uh, needs to do in order to provide you security. Two things. First, it obviously has to be attached to you. <laughs> the anchor has to be committed to you. You can't break the bond between you and the anchor. You, 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 need, you need a really thick, massive metal chain connected to the really big metal piece, uh, that if somebody actually came up to me. Uh, uh, a navy midshipman came up to me after the first service and said, "You know, the anchor, the the chain is every bit as important. Actually, as the anchor itself. That if you have a really teeny tiny um, chain, uh, that uh, that you'll just get still blown all or pushed all over the the water without without having a, a substantial chain. I didn't know that. Okay. But secondly, more more profoundly. Not only does the anger have to be connected to you, the anchor has to go into a realm where you cannot go. The anchor has to go to a place that you cannot see. So the problem is with, it's with the water, isn't it? The water, we're always bobbing up and down and, and feeling seasick and nothing is stable and isn't that what this life feels like, and then the storm comes, and now I'm, I'm going every which way. The water is constantly changing. The water is the problem, and you don't need just an anchor to go into the water. You need it to go to a place where you cannot go, and where is that place? To the rock, to the rocks on the bottom of the lake, <laughs> on the sea, to the immovable, immovable stable, secure you don't need simply an anchor that's committed to you. You need an anchor that enters into the deeper realm and locks on to the stable thing there. And we know then, you know, the physics of it, that if you can actually latch on to something that is stable, then that stability, you know, it, I don't know, force diagrams, and all how that works, but the stability of the bottom is actually transferred up the chain to the, to the ship on top. Tim Keller writes this. He says, uh, <laughs> the, the problem is with the water. The, this world, this life, doesn't it feel like just crazy, topsy-turvy water? One of the hardest things about getting older is you see how everything is changing. And I know when when you're 15 and you have a conversation with your grandmother and she's, she always brings up how things are, today are not the way they used to be and it's so easy to uh, look you're gonna be saying that too very shortly. You start saying that in your late thirties, I think. <laughs> Definitely by your early forties, you start saying, Well, it's not the way that it used to be. Um, things are always they're always changing. One of the hardest things about getting older, Keller goes on, is is to see how quickly your company seems to get over you when you're gone. How quickly Even after a funeral, one of the things that's most unnerving, he says, about going to lots of funerals is you see how quickly people move on with their lives, how quickly they move on without the person they just said goodbye to. Everybody has an anchor away. Most people's anchor is stuck in the middle of the water. It's not attached to anything firm you've even seen this. Like you try to anchor yourself to a romantic relationship or you watch a friend do that and then their relationship just crumbles and what happens to them? They crumble with it. It annoys you that they're they're so out of touch at that point but it's, I mean, what happens when you lose your job and everything was built on your career success? Everybody has an anchor away. Are there are there here's a question, are there any rocks at the bottom of the universe? Is there anything that doesn't change? Is there anything we can count on? Is there any solidity we can count on that will never let us down? And the answer to that question, according to the author of Hebrews, is yes, yes, there is. Verse 19. We have an, an anchor of, I love how he puts it, it's an anchor of the soul. We have an anchor, the soul is the center of, our, of us as human beings. We have an anchor of the soul that is firm and, and secure and has gone in, he says at the end of verse 19, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What in the world is it? is a curtain doing in the middle of an anchor passage. <laughs> and the answer is, it's referring to the Old Testament sanctuary, the Old Testament, uh, how there was a veil in the in the temple that separated the most holy place from the holy place. Behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant, which the high priest was able to enter into, to come before the, the presence of God and the glory of God one time a year through the sacrificial blood of the sacrifice of, of atonement and he says that Jesus has gone there Jesus is a forerunner for us which means that we will one day too enter into this heavenly sanctuary not this sanctuary made with the hands of men but in he's gone as a priest he's gone not as a priest in the order of Aaron or Levi who who had to offer sacrifices every day, who who died and had to be replaced year by year, who offered the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away sins, they'll tell us in chapter 10 later on. But Jesus, Jesus entered into the holy of holies once for all with his own infinitely precious blood and indestructible life. The anchor is Jesus Christ. And we are anchored, not to the bottom of the world, it's an inverse. I love that's my favorite part of the passage. It's an inverse anchor. We are, our anchor has gone into the to the to heaven itself, and it's rooted itself you know, around the ark of the covenant, so to speak, in the presence of God. And then this giant chain comes down, down to earth, and uh, and and anchors us here. About the same time, anchors away was being written. A Baptist pastor in West Sussex, England, was writing what would end up being his most famous song or uh, most famous hymn. It was originally published anonymously in a book. um, Get this title. This is a great title. Hymns of Praise, a new selection of gospel hymns combining all the excellencies of our spiritual poets with many originals too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that... He was a pastor. he can't do titles. It's how it works. The original name that the, the pastor gave to this hymn was, quote, "The immutable basis for a sinner's Hope." It just kind of lacks a ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah. But, as some of you probably have already uh, guessed, you know, this hymn came to be known as "My Hope is Built." on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the operative verse, the verse that's, that matters for us, is verse 2. You want to just recite it with me? Verse 2. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ took it upon himself to secure the promises of salvation for us. He died, was risen, and ascended into heaven to attach our anchor there. Reasonable, reasonable trust in a big truth. That's what God is calling you today. Reasonable trust. And he says, I swear this is true. I swear it. I swear it to you.